Amen. All right. And praise the Lord for that song. That was a real blessing. If you turn your Bibles uh, to Matthew chapter 18 this morning, um, just thinking about that song and the lyrics of it, um, it says there will be a day where everyone bows before the Lord, but it's better that we choose to do that than being made to do it. And we have that today. We get, we get the opportunity today to bow before him, bow our hearts before him, um, give our lives to him. And so it's a privilege this morning uh, to be in church. It's a privilege uh, to open the word of God. And I don't take that lightly. Uh, the Lord's impressed upon me some things that I think are, are needful for myself. But as I'm part of a church, I think it's needful for all of us as a body. And uh, so we're going to look at some of these passages in Matthew this morning and uh, praise the Lord for just everything being up and running again, the choir back up, vocal groups back up. It just feels like church again. Uh, keep praying for Pastor as he's away. He's in Thailand at the moment. Um, he's been ministering over there and things have been going well. They, they sent out um, Udom from the Thai church there and, and starting a new work um, over there. So praise the Lord for that. Just pray for him and uh, for the folks that are helping him with that. Um, but Matthew 18, uh, thank you, John, for reading in Mark 9. Uh, Mark 9 kind of set up uh, a, a corresponding passage here in Matthew where the disciples were asking Jesus, or the, uh, rather the disciples were talking amongst themselves about who would be the greatest, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, or who's the greatest uh, even among themselves. And uh, look, I have two kids, and they're not little tiny kids anymore. Um, Reese is going into grade 12, can you believe it? I'm so old. Um, and everyone older than me is like, you're not old, thank you. Um, but if you have kids, or maybe even if you've just been in school, which is pretty much most of us, you'll understand at certain times there's that, that question of, hey, which one do you like better? Or what's your favourite of this thing? And if you have kids, you would understand that even your kids will say, hey, which one of us do you like better, mum? Or which one of us do you like better, dad? Who is your favourite child? And you're not supposed to have favourites, and I don't have favourites, just in case you were wondering. And Reese and Laura are like, who's going to be the favourite? But that question actually comes up. And it might be like, hey, they've both done a drawing or something, and they bring it to you, and they don't tell you who's done which one, and they want to see which one has been picked as the favourite, because then they can say, yeah, that's me, see? So I always take the diplomatic route, and I'm like, I like this in this one, I like this in this one. You know what? They're both favourites. Because I don't want them growing up thinking that dad loves this one more than this one because that's just how we go. But the disciples were a little bit in a similar position of arguing, going back and forth, talking about who would be the favourite or who would be the greatest. And, you know, what we can expect that kind of conversation from children. I mean, we would expect that. I expected it even before I had kids. I knew it was coming one day because I was a kid. And I probably said the same thing to my parents. And so if you're about to have kids or you have kids, you can expect that. Uh, and, but we would expect that from children. And we would say, oh, that's understandable to, to hear that kind of question or, or remark from a kid. Um, but you probably wouldn't expect it from Jesus' disciples. And I know that these passages can be very familiar to us and we've heard them a lot, probably heard them preached a lot. Uh, but just think about it. These were not children asking this question. This was not about like my drawing and this drawing and which one's better. These were grown men asking the question. These were grown men talking and discussing amongst themselves, perhaps even arguing amongst themselves who would be the greatest. And so here in Matthew 18, I just want you to have a look in verse 1. And the last half of that verse is what the disciples say to Jesus. They came saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, if you know Jesus or if you know the Bible and how he interacts with people, you know he's not going to give them someone's name. His response is not going to be, oh, it's you. His response is not going to be, hey, it's none of you, it's this guy. He's not going to do that. He's going to teach them something. He's going to challenge their thinking. He's going to get them to not stop worrying about what the answer to that question is and worry about what the heart behind the question is. That's how Jesus operates. That's why I love how Jesus talks to people because we learn so much about the heart of a matter and not just the fine details about something. 
And that's really the premise of everything that we're going to look at today. It's not about finding the black and white answer to things. And sometimes there is black and white answers to things in the Bible. And sometimes there isn't. But today I just want to look at some of these things and get the understanding or the heart that Jesus desired his disciples to have and therefore the heart that he desires you and I to have especially as Christians this morning. So I'll get you to turn to Matthew 5. If you can keep your place in Matthew 18, we will come back there. But Matthew 5, and before we look at Christ's response to their question, we're going to see that Christ had already been challenging their thinking in some other areas too. That this was not the first time that he's going to be uh, approached with a question and then put something back on them to, to get them to think a little bit differently. Jesus did that all the time. And so we'll see in Matthew 5 here that he's already done that. And and this is him talking, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. It it reaches from Matthew 5 all the way through to chapter 7. And he's talking to his disciples. And I I think that's talking more about the greater group of disciples, not just the chosen 12. And so he's challenging the heart of his followers in this Sermon on the Mount. And, you know, you can skim your eyes over that passage and you can see that he's challenging their approach to different things. He's challenging their philosophy. He's challenging their traditions. And they had a lot of traditions. And he's challenging their values. And so he's teaching from his heart and he's teaching to a group of people that already think a certain way. And he's trying to get them to see that, you know what, you might think this way, but actually it's a little bit like this. And so that's what Jesus is doing here, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount. And he illuminates their understanding in some of these passages of what the law means personally. Because you've got to think about it. These people have been growing up with the law, with Moses' law and everything from uh, the Old Testament. And that's that's all that they saw. That's all that they knew. That's all they understand. And they had... uh, the danger of just seeing that that's all there was and not seeing that there was something a little bit more to it. So Jesus pulls out some of these things here. And I want to show you just a few of them very quickly. Uh, He shows them that there's a responsibility and a personal accountability associated with God's expectations. Look here in verse 13. It says here, Ye are the salt of the earth. That's Jesus speaking to his disciples. So he says, Ye are the salt of the earth. Okay, that's a fact. But what he's actually teaching them is... Go and be an influence. Make sure you are salty in a good way. Make sure that you have a good influence on people. Don't just understand the fact that you're an influence. Be a good influence. Uh, Verse 14 in this chapter, he says, Ye are the light of the world. Fact. But then in verse 16, he says, So therefore, use that knowledge, get the heart that you're supposed to then shine your light. So he's giving them understanding, but he's also challenging how maybe they've seen some of these things before. Uh, Skim down to verse 21 and verse 22. And he says this phrase a couple of times, actually quite a few times in the whole Sermon on the Mount. He says at the start of verse 21, he says, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time. So you've heard these things before. This is not news to you, what I'm about to say. You've heard that it was said of them of old time, thou shalt not kill. And they're all going, yep, got that one. That's not a new one for me. I understand that. Thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. Understand that. I understand the law. Verse 22, he says, but. Now that word but, when you see that word but, it's, it's, it's saying that there's a change coming. There's a, there's a switch coming. I want you to like lock in here and see that it's not like what you thought it was. So you've heard that, you know, thou shalt not kill, and if you do, you'll be in danger of the judgment. But, verse 22, I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. So he's saying to them, and I know you get this, he's saying to them, that's the law, but I'm saying to you, it's greater than just the, the letter of the law. That you, you would be in danger of the judgment if you physically kill someone. But I'm saying to you that you take that law and you magnify it. And actually now it actually becomes something that's dealt with in the heart of mankind. That if you are angry towards your brother, it's just as bad, without a cause, it's just as bad as that physical killing of someone that deserves a punishment, that deserves a judgment. 
So he's challenging their thinking here, and, and this is the first time they've heard this kind of thing. And so he, he doesn't just stop there. He's challenging their thinking. He's challenging their philosophy. Look up verse 27, verse 28. He says the same phrase, you've heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. They would be familiar with that. Verse 28, but again, I say unto you, whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his, what's the next word? Heart. That's the point Jesus is trying to make. He's trying to say there's a heart matter here. There's a heart issue here. There's a, the heart is involved in all of these things. I want you to know that, yes, the law is there and it's good and it teaches us a lot of things and it's necessary, but there's a heart that's to be found within all of that. That's what Jesus is getting at here. And he's trying to get his followers to understand that. So he's saying with the, with the not committing adultery and looking with lust, he's saying, you know what, you have eyes of flesh so control what they're looking at. Don't just, don't just stand on the ground, well, I haven't committed adultery physically yet, so I'm all good. He's saying, no, no, no. Think about what your eyes are looking at and what you're thinking and therefore what's happening in your heart. That's what you need to be concerned about. That's what you need to be focused on. So he's really revolutionising their understanding of even the law. Now, Jesus never gives information just for information's sake. How many of you know that? He doesn't waste his words. He, you know, every word that's written in the Bible is not there to fill pages or to fill time. Like, I, I can waste a lot of words. You might be saying, get to the point. But he doesn't waste words. So when he gives information, it's for a purpose. And he's showing here in these, just these few examples, and you've got two chapters of this Sermon on the Mount, he's showing in these, just two, these couple of examples that the outward has an impact on the inward. What's outside affects inside. And I know you know that. We all know that. We all grow up with that, even, not even attending church and, and having teaching from the Bible. We understand that the outward affects the inward, but we don't always pay attention to that. We're not always thinking, okay, I need to be aware of that. And so Jesus is getting them to focus on that actual thought. Jesus is teaching that we, because he's talking here to people, are not just machines that have the laws as our instruction manual, but that we're spiritual beings inside a sin-corrupted body and the outward and the inward are actually connected. So we're not exempt from what happens on the outside. It's not like, oh, well, that doesn't affect me on the inside. No, it very much does. We are spiritual beings. Yes, we're housed in this body and it is corrupt by sin and we call that our flesh and that's the thing that can influence our thinking, our speaking, the things we do, the things we say, why we do them, why we don't do them. And so Jesus is challenging them with this. He's building understanding that leads to a heart change. And this is all introduction, and I'm going to get into Matthew 18 now and look at this passage specifically. So if you want to flick with me to Matthew 18, back to where the disciples were talking or asking about who was the greatest. So I gave you all that in Matthew 5 because this is Jesus' pattern. He, he walked with people, he taught people, and he didn't do it for a show. He didn't do it just so he could have a following because he was trying to actually affect hearts. If you can train a heart, then you can, you can, you can change someone's behaviour in a good way. If you try and do it from the other end, if you try and change behaviour and then hope that the heart gets changed, then it's, it's really going to be frustrating. But Jesus goes, no, no, I'm going to actually go to the heart of the matter here. So back in Matthew 18, the disciples have, have asked this question and they actually needed to see themselves differently. They needed to see themselves differently. The disciples needed to change how they saw themselves and Jesus makes a point here of bringing a child into their midst because not only did he want them to see themselves differently, he wanted to see a child in a different light. And you'll see that come out in this passage. You know, the Bible never paints the picture of a Christian as a mighty strong warrior with no need for protection, with no need for armour. In fact, it actually instructs us to put on the whole armour of God in Ephesians 6. And the disciples were asking this question about who would be greatest. And what they'd actually done is they distanced themselves 
from having a childlike faith, from having a childlike dependence, from having a childlike humility, and so much that Jesus had to bring that child physically into their midst. Now think about this. You've got these, these 12 guys and probably some others that are around as well, and they're arguing about amongst them as men or asking this question, who's the greatest amongst us as men? And Jesus goes, you know what? I'm going to bring a child into the midst. And they're probably going, what is he going to do? What's with this child? We're talking about us as, as, as adults, as ones who can understand and think and, and, and you know, reason and all this sort of stuff. Why is he bringing a child into the midst? But he does this because he's going to prove and illustrate a point. So Matthew 18, verse 3, he makes this statement after they've asked this question. He says, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. He says to his disciples, there's a child here now. I want you to focus on this child. And he says, unless you be converted. You know what that word converted means? It means a change of mind. So unless you change your mind about who you are and what you are and where your position is and your status and, and who's the greatest, unless you change your mind about that and be more like this child, then that question is not going to be answered. He talks specifically here about you won't enter into the kingdom of heaven. He's saying there has to be a change of mind of how you see things so you can be effective in your Christian ministry. So you can understand who you actually are in that Christian life. So you can understand who you are as a Christian ambassador. So what he was actually asking the disciples here is, I want you, men, to see yourself in this little child here. Now, that can be a little bit confronting. I mean, I don't know that I would like to be compared to a young child. Because you've already passed that stage. You've passed that stage of growing and learning and, and, and going through everything. And, and you've come to this level of what we would call maturity, adulthood. And I don't want to be brought back to that or referenced as that. And I'm sure the disciples were thinking that a little bit as well. You know, there's a passage in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11, that says this, When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but, there's that word but again, there's a change here, I used to do it like this, but when I became a man, I put away the childish things. I don't play with Lego anymore. I've said that purposely because I know that adults play with Lego. And there are people here who play with Lego. I'm not actually bagging you out. I'm just joking. But that's how we often think. We, we, we put everything to do with a child into the childish box, into the childish category. That, that has been done away with. I am now a mature adult. So I don't want to be thinking about myself or referencing myself as likened unto a child. And I'm sure the disciples were thinking the same thing. So we look at a verse in, in 1 Corinthians 13 and say, okay, you get past all of that childish stuff and, and you put it away, you put it behind you because you've moved on from there. But actually there's still things about a child that you're supposed to hold on to, that you're supposed to like in, in, invest and you're supposed to understand and you're supposed to, to grab a hold of and you're supposed to keep you're supposed to keep part of that childishness, not immaturity. See, that's the difference. We think childishness is immaturity. But actually Jesus is, is illustrating physically in front of his disciples that there is some things to be learned and grabbed a hold on and kept about being a child. And he is not telling them you need to be immature. So, so what are those things? What is that thing that he's trying to point their attention to? Matthew 18, verse 4, Jesus says this, Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He just answered their question. They were asking who's the greatest. In, notice how there was no name mentioned there. There was no person's name mentioned there. He said, whoever humbles himself, how? Like this child not humbles himself as an adult, humbles themselves within the, the confines of what we know is acceptable as an adult or you know, playing the game. He says, 
as this little child. But what's he talking about there? He's, he, he's saying the word humble here is to be ranked below others. So, you know, Jesus talks a lot about preferring others. So basically that's what he's saying. He's saying if you see yourself and if you act like this child where you understand your position, you understand that you're actually ranked lower, it's not that you're not as important, he said that there is, there is a rank, that if you understand that as a Christian, as an adult, that's who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus specifically used a child to illustrate this purpose. Now, he could have taught them anything. But I, I would say this, probably like you and I, you can be taught anything, but sometimes until you see it and you're challenged and it's like a little bit offensive to you, that's when it gets, that's when you understand. And Jesus knows the heart of every man, right? And so he knows how they were going to think about having this child put in their midst, like, hey, everyone focus on this one that you actually think shouldn't probably even be in this room. But I'm telling you that you should be like this child. So you're probably sitting there saying, hey, can we get this distraction out of here? Can we actually get this immaturity out of here? And Jesus is saying, no, 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 that's not immature. There's some things to be learned from this child. And one of them is understanding that you need to be humble, that there are others that you should prefer. I don't think the disciples would have liked to hear this. And sometimes we read this and go, ooh, they just got burnt. Like, ooh, I wouldn't have been liked to be in their position. But the truth is, this is for our learning as well. He did this, it was for them, but it actually is for us too. Like we're not just passive onlookers who go, oh, wow, that happened. No, we're supposed to go, wow, that happened, and what does that mean for me? Because I'm like the disciples. I'm a follower of Christ. Jesus wants me to, to, to understand some things too. So the challenging thing also is Jesus doesn't ask them to do what he wouldn't do. Jesus became a servant. Jesus humbled himself. Jesus preferred others. And he doesn't ask them to do anything he wouldn't do himself. So Matthew 18 verse 5 goes on and talks about receiving Christ with childlike faith. But I actually want you to look down in verse number 6, Matthew 18 verse 6, because this is actually where it gets serious. This is, this is starting to be the pointy end of the stick. And it starts with that word, but. So it's denoting, again, a change of focus. So he's talked about <coughs> that you should be humble like a child, should be childlike. But then he says, But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. That's pretty confronting. That's some strong words right there. Jesus sets up a scenario of an innocent child that is offended by someone else. And offend here doesn't mean to hurt their feelings. I'm sure I do that to kids all the time. Nice haircut. You're probably thinking the same thing about me. Nice haircut. That, that's not what the word offend means. The offend means to entice to sin. So Jesus is saying if, if, a, if, a, if another party, someone else entices a child to sin, then he goes on to say what should happen to that person. It's better, it's actually better that you grab a millstone, which is a ridiculous amount of weight. I tried to look up how much, but they're just all different. Basically, he says, if you hang that around someone's neck and put them in the sea, they aren't coming back. And that's a good thing. He said it's actually better that that happens. It's better. So think about this. Jesus is talking about someone having their life lost is better than if you entice a young child to sin. If you draw a young child's heart away from what is pure, he said it's better that that person be drowned in the sea. That's strong. Very strong. And I don't think... This conversation just happened in five minutes. I don't think Jesus saying this, he just said it and then he went on to the next thing and just, oh, I just forgot what he said. I think this would have actually stirred them a little bit. 
So you're telling me that doing one thing that affects the heart of this child is actually worthy of, of death, worthy of that punishment. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. That, that challenges me. But don't gloss over what he says about that one responsible. There's no coming back from a millstone around your neck in the sea. So think about that. Jesus is saying it's better that that influence in that child's life never comes back. That is gone. Now, I haven't had a millstone around my neck in the sea. I have had a child that's you know, trying to grab onto me because they think they're going to drown. That's hard enough to try and keep your head above water. But a millstone that is pure rock, stone, that's actually never, you're never coming back from that. So, so what's the point of me harping on this? Because Jesus is saying that there are things that entice you to sin, and he's talking specifically about a child here, but he's saying there's things that entice you to sin that should be dealt with and never to return. They should be taken out of that circle or sphere of influence and never come back. It's, it's not a, oh, take it away for a moment. It's, it is gone, bottom of the sea. How deep? Who knows? No one's ever finding it. Relating to protecting, he's saying. Jesus is relating to protecting a child's innocence, a child's purity, a child's preciousness. And I make this statement, children are impressionable. Children need protecting. Think about it. From the moment a child is born, they need to be protected from harm. They need to be protected from dangers. And we set up our houses, our rooms, our cars, everything to allow for that. I mean, you know, whether you do it or not, whatever, but some people go as far as, you know, putting things on the corners of everything to make sure that they just don't knock their head or hurt themselves. Uh, lock every cupboard that has access to anything that could, could be a, a danger to them. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm saying this, this is what we do. We understand that children need to be protected from danger. They need to be protected from harm. But we also realise they need more than just protection for their physical body. They have a soul. They have a spirit that can be influenced and impressed upon. And they live in a world that is focused on satisfying the flesh and desires. So what is Jesus wanting the disciples to understand here? So he, he talks here about if, you, if, if someone does this and draws the heart of a child away, it's basically worthy of punishment, worthy of death. And that influence should be gone forever. What's he actually getting at here? He's saying children are impressionable. The heart of a child is precious. And then he moves straight into these next verses that relate directly to the disciples. And I'll say this, they relate directly to me and to you. Have a look down. We're just going to skip verse 7 for a second. Matthew 18, verse 8 and 9. So he says, If someone offends a little one, this is what should happen. And then he says, wherefore, wherefore means this is why, if thy hand, now who's he talking to? His disciples. If thy hand or foot offend thee, someone else. so if your hand or your foot offend you, so no one else is involved here, this is just the one person he's talking to. Each individual person, this is, this is relating right to them. And this is relating right to you and right to me. If thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. And he uses this word again, better. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And he doesn't stop there. Verse 9, and if thy eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee it is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. 
It's easy to understand that a child needs protection so that their heart doesn't get drawn away from the Lord. It's easy to understand that a child is impressionable, a child is precious, a child is valuable. It's easy to understand that. And we look at children and, yeah, half the time we think, oh, they're nice and cute and all that kind of stuff and it's funny and, and all that sort of stuff. And we understand that they need to be protected. It's easy to understand that. But what's hard to understand is that me as an adult, a mature Christian, that I also need to be protected as much as that child from sin, from the things that offend, from the things that draw me away, from the things that entice me to sin so my heart gets drawn away. It's easy to understand a child needs that, but it's hard for me to take and, and grasp and accept that I am as vulnerable as that child. And Jesus is making a point here. He put this child in the middle for a reason. He's saying, as much... As you know, this child needs to be protected from the things that entice it to sin. You yourself also need to be protected from that. Your hand is the thing that's going to cause you to sin. It needs to be gone. He's not saying that literally. We understand that, right? He's not saying, saw your own hand off. He's not saying, actually physically remove your eye. We understand that. He's saying these are the things that from the outside affect the inside. What you look at affects your heart and can draw you away unto sin. What you do with your hands, because you, your hand is made out of flesh and it just wants stuff, it can draw you away unto sin. Your feet can take you to places that draw you away from the Lord and things of holiness and purity and righteousness unto sin. And he said that the person who draws that heart of a child away, a millstone should be hung around their neck and they're cast into the sea. But he says, for you, it's all on you because it's your hand. It's not someone else doing it. Your hand, you identify that's the problem. You need to cut it off. You, you, no one else. See, the child is at that age where they don't fully get it all. They're responding to things and just learning along the way. But you and I, as mature adults, we understand or we should understand, based on what Jesus has said, that it's actually up to us to do that chopping, to do that plucking, that there are things in our lives that are drawing us away unto sin. And the disciples are sitting here hearing this and probably before he, he had this conversation, we're thinking, I am so much more mature and settled and established as a Christian than this young child. Now, maybe they didn't verbalise it, but I'm just saying, I know my heart would probably be thinking the same thing. I mean, I got this. And I've grown through some things. I've grown through some temptations. I kind of know how to handle myself. And Jesus is saying, I want you to think about yourself the same way you see this child. It needs to be protected. Its heart needs to be protected. That means your flesh, your body, needs to be dealt with when it becomes a problem. That means whatever your hand is touching that causes the problem, that needs to be dealt with. That's where he's going with this. Just like the millstone around the person's neck, cutting off your hand seems drastic. But Jesus wanted the disciples to see themselves in the same light as the child. They were grown men, but each of them, think about this, each of them was a child of God. So Jesus is making a connection. See that child, you understand its needs? You are a child of God. You have the same needs. Yeah, you're 30 years old than them. You still have the same need. It's still as imperative that you look after your heart. It's still as imperative that you deal with things that cause you to sin. It's just as important. And you might be the oldest one here, as a Christian, but you are his child. So Jesus is putting the child in, in your midst as well. 
You might be the strongest one here, but you are his child. You might be the most mature one here, save the longest. You are his child. You know, we see the word child in the Bible so many times. And it's not always talking about someone who's really young. It's talking like this, at being a child of God. So sometimes we need to see ourselves as a child of God in the, in the fact that we need to be humble and that we have a need and that we are impressionable as well. So Jesus is addressing the need for humility, the need for purity, and that purity needs looking after and protecting. So someone enticing a child to sin is just like your own flesh enticing you to sin. Honestly, if you get nothing else from this morning, think about that. Someone enticing a child to sin is just like your own flesh enticing you to sin. You wouldn't stand back and let it happen if you knew it was going to happen to a child, but we're comfortable with standing back and letting it happen when it's our own flesh. We're used to it. We know there's forgiveness. We, we know that we can handle certain things, so we push the envelope. But Jesus is saying, I don't want you to think about it like that. Stop thinking like you're a mature Christian. Think about yourself like you're a babe in Christ, that you need that protection, you need that purity as much as that child does. Offend here in this verse is the same as when he's talking about the child to entice the sin. And these passages are not merely referring to learning from mistakes, but rather being cognizant of the dangers, the temptations and the traps that our own flesh can open doors to. You know, this, this, this statement that he makes about if your hand or your foot or your eye cause you to sin, cut it off, pluck it out, it's, it's found three times. It's found in Matthew 5, it's found in Matthew 18, it's found in Mark 9. Your own flesh is against the things of Christ. Well, I didn't choose that. So? Does that mean you get to just be fatalistic and go, well, whatever happens, whatever happens? No, we have to be on the forefront. On the, on, on the, we, need, we need to have the, our, our foot forward on these matters. You know, I, I said I got my hair cut. You saw that. I got it cut yesterday. I have a point to this story. I was talking to the, to the hairdresser, never had him before, just the barber that, you know, you just walk in and then whoever you get, you get. <clears throat> and he's 10 years younger than me, I found out, and he was pleasant to talk to. And, you know, the whole, like, oh, what, you know, how long have you been working here? Whatever, whatever. So just having conversation. And I always try this out with a new barber because I find that as soon as I say I work at a church, conversation stops. So he eventually said, oh, so what do you do for work? I said, oh, yeah, I work at a church, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, all oh, right, and then didn't say much. I'm like, okay, well, I'll just keep the conversation going. I said, oh, so have you, do you ever go to church or do you ever go to church when you're a child or anything like that? And anyway, he said, not really, like when I was a kid, once or twice kind of thing. And, you know, he didn't really want to talk too much about that. But it did lead into a conversation about children. And he said, oh, I've got a bub on the way in June and, and all that sort of stuff. And so I'm like, well, you know, I'll, I'll share with him some things that I learnt having young children and all that. And he brought up the whole, like, having devices and, and seeing kids down in front of devices and he wasn't a fan of that and he didn't want to be that kind of parent and all these sorts of things. And I just said to him, like, what we did and what we tried to, you know, navigate around that and everything. And he was really actually positive, like he was actually on par with everything that I would agree with and say that it's a good thing to do and try and, um, you know, avoid influences and all that sort of stuff. And then he made this comment that he's like, yeah, but you know what, the world is moving so fast, I kind of feel like you just got to go with it, you just got to run with it. And I said, well, you know what, you don't have to, you just have to be purposeful to not do that. You have to be purposeful to train your kids in a certain way that's going to be helpful to them. It, like, yes, it feels like the whole world and society and influence is, is overwhelming, but you don't have to just put, pull your hands off and say, well, whatever happens, happens. 
you actually get to purpose to do something different. And it can be hard. And he said, yeah, it just feels like no one else is really doing that anymore. And I'm like, you're right. Like even as Christians, we kind of feel like that. But here's the thing. How he feels about that is sometimes how we feel about when our flesh entices us to sin. It just feels like it's inevitable. Like no matter how hard I try, it's always going to be there. It's always going to come back. It's always going to be a problem. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't deal with it when it comes up. Because we're not only dealing with it for ourselves, we're teaching others how to deal with it. We're honouring what Jesus said in his instruction. He said, cut it off. He didn't say, leave it around. And here's the thing, no matter your physical age, no matter your spiritual maturity, no matter your life experience, the flesh remains an enemy against Christ. Your hands, your feet, your eyes, your tongue, every part of your flesh is corrupted. Now he gives this instruction here, we're going to finish in just a moment. He gives this instruction in those verses 8 to 9 to cut them off if they cause a problem. And you understand, to cut off literally means to amputate. It means to cut off occasion. No more access. It's not coming back. No negotiating. I think that's where sometimes we fall down is we we negotiate with ourselves. We negotiate with with God. And we say, oh, God understands. And we, we, we negotiate. We give it another chance. But this term here, cutting them off and plucking them out, means there is no negotiation. It's final. It's fixed. And notice that there are actually no other steps leading into Jesus' solution here. Hey, Jesus could have given a whole bunch of different solutions to the problem of the sin that besets you, to the problem of your heart being drawn away. He could have given a whole bunch of solutions, but there is one solution. There is only one solution. It is to cut it off. Now, I don't know what it might be for yourself or someone you know, but there's something. Don't kid yourself into thinking that you are the most mature Christian and your flesh never draws you away to sin. Don't kid yourself. You have it just as much as I do, just as much as the disciples did. Jesus, no, this message is for the disciples, but it's for you and me. So don't think that this doesn't apply to you because it does. It's challenging. I mean, I, I struggle to put this together because it's challenging me about my flesh. Because I know how my flesh entices me to sin. And it's like, it's so much. But the solution here is Jesus' solution. And he's not teaching how to have greater resilience. He's not teaching how to be the strongest in the moment of temptation. He's saying, no, 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 that, it's not time for that. It's time to cut it off. If you know it's causing a problem, cut it off. It seems drastic, it seems dramatic, but it's actually based on protecting purity. Purity before the Lord. Purity in your heart. Purity in your intentions. Purity in your motives. Purity in your words. Purity in your actions. You have to protect it just as much as that child needs protection. You have to protect it within yourself. And you need the Lord's help to do that. You can't do it by yourself. So Jesus wanted the disciples to think about how they would handle protecting a child and then transfer that to how they saw themselves and their flesh. And you know what? This question about who is the greatest arises based on fleshly attitudes. So Jesus answered their question but taught them a whole new thing to think about. And in each of the passages this is mentioned, the responsibility is on no one else but themselves. It says, if thine hand offend thee, he doesn't say get someone else to cut it off, he says cut them off. Jesus didn't say this solution was convenient. He didn't say this solution would be easy. He didn't say it would be painless because it will be painful. You cut your own hand off, it's painful. Jesus is not giving you a solution that's carefree and easy. He's giving you a solution that works, that he knows is working. He did say that it, would, that it is better. And Matthew 5 actually uses the word profitable. 
It's profitable if you handle things in this matter. Better means beautiful by reason of purity of heart and life. And we don't equate those two things. We think cutting your own hand off means pain, blood, mess, hurt. We don't think, oh, better by purity of heart and life. But that's actually what Jesus is getting at. He's saying there is initial pain when you do that. And look, I haven't had something amputated, but I know that there's pain. I know that when I try and put something away from me, it hurts, but the problem is that if it's just sitting next to me, I'm going to pick it up and then fall into the same thing again. It actually comes down to this question. Do you want to protect and preserve your purity before the Lord? I'm going to ask that again, and I want you to think about the answer to that. Do you want to protect and preserve your purity before the Lord? It's easy to look at someone else and be concerned about their purity. It's easy to look at someone else and be concerned with the things that they need to get right. It's easy to look at someone else and tell them to cut their own hand off. It's easy to look at someone else and and point out all the reasons they're in the situation they're in. But this is actually about asking yourself, do I want to protect my purity before the Lord? Yes. I'm sure everyone here would be saying yes. But it actually requires work. It requires an action. It requires getting uncomfortable. And this is uncomfortable for me to say because I'm saying it, but I need it just as much as everyone else. So I'll get down from this beautiful pulpit, which I'm so glad I can preach behind tonight, today. And I have to ask myself that same question. I have to live the rest of this day and tomorrow and the rest of this week and my life asking that question and doing something or not doing something according to it. Here's the last thing I'll point out this morning. He doesn't just say to cut it off. He says to cast it from thee. It's not enough that you just cut off the source of that thing that makes you sin, that thing that draws your heart away from the Lord. He says to cast it from thee, which means to throw or let go of a thing without caring where it falls. Like, I don't even know where that thing landed. Like a millstone around someone's neck at the bottom of the sea, I got no GPS coordinates for that. He's saying if you cut it off, cast it away. Get rid of it. Don't put it in your pocket. I'll sew this back on. Don't hope that it will be preserved for when you want to use it again. He's saying get rid of it. Cast it away. This is a purposeful action. Not looking to re-engage. Not looking to take it up again. Proverbs 4, verses 14 and 15, you don't have to turn there. It says this, Enter not into the path of the wicked and go not in the way of evil men. And he makes this statement, Avoid it, pass not by it, turn from it and pass away. He gives four statements essentially saying the same thing. Why? Because we try and we try and we try to pick that thing back up. Even though we have cut it off, We've been convicted, we do something about it, but we just set it aside. And God is saying, hey, avoid it, pass not by it, turn from it, pass away. Get out of its vicinity or get it out of your vicinity. That's what he's talking about. You know, acknowledging a weakness isn't childish, but ignoring a weakness is childish. And there's much more we have in common with little children than we think and probably than we want to admit. Matthew 18.10, he finishes this section here. He says, Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. You know, despise not has various meanings and one of those meanings is don't think little of. So don't think little of the child. Why? Because there's so much you can learn from it. There's so much you can take from it. There's so much of its innocency and purity that you can learn from it. There's so much about protecting its heart 
that you can learn from. So don't think little of it. Don't think it's not needed. Don't think it's unimportant. It's very much important. That's why Jesus took the time to bring that child into their midst and get them to focus on it and think about how they should relate, how they should see themselves in that child. Don't think you're greater when it comes to temptation to sin. Don't think that you've got it all sorted out. Yes, you've learned some things. I've learned some things. I've learned from the word. I've learned from experience. I've learned from other people's counsel. But don't think that you're past all of that. You are dealing and battling with your flesh for as long as you're on this earth. So this is a constant fight. This is the Christian fight. This is, the, this is the Christian battle between our spirit and between our flesh. But thankfully, Jesus gives a solution. And he doesn't give an easy solution because you know what? There is no easy solution. It's a fight. But thankfully, there's so much we can learn just from a little child. So I hope that's a help this morning. I'm going to pray. And I will say this. I don't, do, I don't generally do altar calls, but I'll say this. If there's something that the Lord has dealt with you about, something the Lord's prompting you about, something the Lord's put on your heart, just as these words from his word have been spoken, then I'd say come and pray, ask the Lord for help, ask the Lord for wisdom, ask the Lord for strength, ask the Lord for guidance, ask the Lord for someone to help you, ask the Lord to just know what he wants in that thing. I'd say just come to the altar, pray. You can pray in your seat, but I'd tell you this, makes a whole lot of difference when you get out of your seat and you come down and you pray at this altar. Something changes in your heart when you get up out of your seat and you do that. You might not be able to do that this morning, but do what you can. So I'm going to pray now and then I'll hand over to uh, Caleb. We'll sing a last song at the end. Let's pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your goodness. We thank you, Father, for your word. And Lord, I admit this morning it's, it's uncomfortable it's uncomfortable for me, even as the one up here speaking about it. But Lord, it is so necessary. I thank you, Father, that you show us the things that are necessary for each one of us, Lord God. I thank you, Lord, for the lessons that you've shown the disciples that we can learn from, that you preserved it in your word, Lord God. I thank you, Father, that you make a way of escape for us in every problem, in every circumstance, in every battle, in every fight. Lord, we, are, we groan in this flesh that we have, but Lord, you have the answer to all of that. But Father, I know that this world is, is seemingly getting worse and worse and, and the, the influence is getting stronger and stronger, but Father, your word is able to penetrate through all of that. Your Holy Spirit is able to guide through all of that. And so I do pray for myself. I pray for each one here, Lord. I pray for each one listening, Lord, that you would do a work in each of our hearts. Lord, you've already challenged us this morning. And Father, I pray that through that challenging, you'd help us to just draw closer to yourself. Help us to see and find a way through these difficulties. Father, I pray for your strength on each life, on each soul, Lord, on each heart. Lord, you are a good God. I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for making a way. I do pray that you would guide us, unite us, Lord, as a church. Help us, Father, to glorify you in all that we do. Lord, if there's things in our lives that we're struggling with, I just pray that you give clarity in those things. I pray, Lord, you would help us to get alongside one another. Lord, we're always going to be struggling with these things. We're never going to be rid of them until we're in heaven with you, Lord. And so, Father, I pray you'd help us to be united in our approach. Help us to uphold and uplift your word and the instruction that you give to us, Lord God. Father, I thank you for being a loving God. I thank you for making a way for us. Thank you for this time this morning for each one that's here. And Lord, we do pray that you continue to help us. We love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.